I have a have a, a true confession to make. Uh, last week, when you began to bring up gifts and things, I, I assumed it was for Sarah. I was already in preaching mode and had my mind thinking only of that. So even when you were talking and saying things about Sarah, maybe saying things about <laughs> appreciation to me, I heard, wah, 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 wah. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> But I didn't, really, uh, I didn't really connect the two that uh, a lot of those cards and things were for pastor's appreciation until we got home and started opening some cards. Uh, so I definitely want to thank each of you for your cards and uh, your uh, nice comments to us. We truly appreciate being the pastor's chair of this church, but I just didn't even realize, just didn't even connect in the moment that, uh, that that's what that was for as well. But uh, definitely thank you. We love you guys. And uh, we're just continuing to move forward with what God is calling us here to do. And I, I believe that God's bringing some clarity to that, even in recent weeks. So um, be prepared. God is about to disrupt our church a bit here and there in good ways, in, uh, in really good ways. So I just wanted to first start off with my confession. Do you re- receive my apology? Kind of, do I need to go to a confessional box, maybe? No? Okay, no. We'll move on. <laughs> So when we think of disruption, um, we've experienced some disruption, and we've been talking about this as the disruptor, and more specifically, the way that God disrupts our lives quite often to try to shake things up, to try to keep us from the status quo of our lives, really, and we've all experienced it. Disruption changes the way that we see things. We see a lot of things differently today than we did about six months ago, right? It It changes our viewpoint and the way that we see things. But we know that life has changed for all of us, whether it be the masks that we wear or stores, the traveling that we do, if you do travel, work, school, families. It's changed a lot. But my question has continued to be all throughout this process, and you've heard me say this over and over again, Because I do believe that God is trying to do something in all of this, and we can easily get our focus in the wrong direction. My question continues to be, what is God trying to teach us as followers in Christ? More specifically, what is he trying to teach you and me through all of this? What are the things that we can be learning? And I really believe that he's trying to get the attention of his church, not only in the United States, but worldwide. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be missing what he's trying to do in this season. Because I have my eyes focused on other things. Now we think of a disrupted church, and for some reason, I don't know why, I just keep going back to squirrels. Just, I have this obsession lately with squirrels, I don't know why. Some of you might remember an old song by a man named Ray Stevens. The day the squirrel went berserk. In the first self-righteous church, right? That church went, that squirrel went through that church and people started confessing <laughs> of things because they didn't know it was a squirrel. But it was, it's a pretty funny song. You could probably Google it and find it on YouTube if you wanted to see it again or maybe you have it on cassette tape or something. I'm not sure, but it's an old song. But we think of the se- this season and we think about the way that God often shakes things up in a church and maybe, yeah, maybe he could use a, a squirrel that went berserk in the first self-righteous church. (laughs) 
But we think of this season, we think of Thanksgiving. We all have so much to be thankful for, and you know, even through the things that we've been going through, we still have it better than a lot of people do. And we think of the fall, and of course it's always a tradition for our family, we like to go apple picking in the fall, and you think of pumpkins and all those things, and all of that brings my mind to the harvest season, the harvest season. And harvest is also a term that Jesus used to speak about our calling to reach out to people. You might remember he said that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, the workers, are few. So it's not as if the harvest is not out there. It's not as if there's a shortage of people who do not have faith in Christ. But the workers are few. It's the workers where there's a shortage. So that brings in the next question. Well, are we seeing the harvest brought in? And if not, why not? Thinking through this harvest season, it's, it's, it's tough to begin to reflect personally and also thinking about the church. And I keep coming back to this fact that all through the things we've been seeing and going through, that we may need to become a disrupted church to see God truly work in our church in this season. And when we think about a disrupted church, it goes way back to the early church in Acts chapter 2, where the church began. The church, the Greek word for a church is ecclesia. Part of that word comes from kaleo, which means to call out. So the ecclesia is the call out from. So we as the church, from the very beginning, had the name ecclesia, to be called out from, the called out ones specifically, the called out ones. So the church has been called out, and we see this all throughout the early history of the church, and we see the results of people who truly believed that they were being called out for a purpose, that they were being called out to reach the lost, that they were being called out for a mission. They sense the call, the call to be something bigger they're called to something bigger than they were themselves. It was a movement of people who believed that they were called out. Now we know that sometimes we have passions and we get really excited about certain things, but over time, that excitement begins to slow down. That excitement begins to fade. And we're not quite as excited as we were at the first. In the book of Revelations, John talks, uh, talks about a church that has lost its first love. They're doing a bunch of things and they're full of activity, but they lost their first love. They've lost their first passion. And it's so easy for us to do the exact same thing where we're so excited about things of Christ, especially when we first come to know him and we first get to sense that, that sin being taken off of our shoulders and we feel that weight lifted. But then the excitement fades. What was once a call, what was once a passion, takes a back burner to other things. Now you know this when you look objectively at your own life. The things that you used to be excited about, some of them have faded. 
Or you may even be jaded by past experiences. This is no different in churches. They're often planted with passion, with sacrifice, with a lot of hard work. But after split, bitterness, frustration, hurt, issues that happen within the church, it's easy to lose that passion that was once there. It's easy to become jaded. In business terminology, they call it mission drift. We know what the mission is, but we've slowly drifted from the mission. Churches often become internally focused. See, the mission has been lost. The people in in the church, most of the time, don't even know that they're in trouble. Because all of us are fairly content. Life is good. Life is as good as it can be. You see, the called out ones slowly fade to become the called to stay in ones. And that was never the call of the church. That was never the call of the believer. That was never the purpose that Christ placed us here on this planet. You see, the really important things often get crowded out by the things that aren't as important. See, if the local church forgets that Christ died and founded his church to reach his people through us, then it's comfortable. And it gets in deep trouble because a path of least resistance is followed. It's in trouble because the mission has now been sacrificed to the goals of the group internally. Our eyes are no longer looking to the fields for harvest. Instead, they're looking to the sanctuary for people. There's a book called The Turnaround Pastor. I've read it probably three or four times now. He says, no radical decisions are made when the focus of the church is maintenance. The dream is long gone, but it doesn't appear to be gone because there's a building in place, a pastor, and often staff. Each Sunday, the routine goes on with singing, preaching, and offering. Week after week, things appear to be normal. The church thinks that the status quo is safe, but it is anything but safe. The church is an army. We are at war. We are on mission. Anytime a church thinks that they can go uh, on R&R for a decade or so, or just remain the same, it's in trouble. A church in maintenance mode is not safe and does not glorify God. A disrupted church. I believe with all my heart that with all the things that are going on in our world today, God wants a disrupted church to step up, to step out, and become disruptors of the status quo. I said it in my worship. During the worship time, I know I was kind of getting ahead of myself and getting ahead of the message a little bit. But that's what I believe God is trying to do in his church. As I've continually stepped back from all that's going on and not getting caught in the fray and all the junk and tried to rise above all the stuff that's happening down below, there's clarity when you're looking from above. There's clarity when you're asking God, okay, God, what are you trying to teach us through these moments? But what makes a great church? When most, most of us describe a great church or a successful church, we often describe how it meets our needs. 
the preaching makes us feel good or it challenges us just at the right level. <laughs> the music is pleasing to us and has drums or does not have drums, depending on your preference. I prefer drums. The church has a program that perfectly fits your gifting and gives you a place to serve. None of those are bad things in and of themselves. But this could be dangerous ground to define the worth of a church based on the way that it fulfills your needs. How would God answer that question? What's his criteria for a great church? Because we don't want to keep running around just doing a bunch of activity and doing a bunch of stuff. Keeping ourselves busy but not being in alignment with the heart of God for this church. We don't want to miss the heart of God. A great church, a healthy church, is one where Jesus Christ is found in word and deed. A church where Jesus Christ is found in word and deed. See, the, a healthy church isn't just a preaching church. A healthy church isn't just a hub for social justice, although those are both important things. A healthy church is one which the word of God is the primary motivator to do the work of God. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, put your creed into your deed. Put your creed into your deed, nor speak with a double tongue. See, if you went to the airport and you began to look around and there were no airplanes coming in and no airplanes going out, you would say, there must be something wrong with this airport. There's some kind of a problem. If you go into a train station and there's no trains coming in or out, you would say, there must be something wrong with this train station. So why is it that we can be a part of churches that go on year after year with very few unchurched people coming to know who Jesus Christ is and yet think that there's no problem? There's a problem. we do? What do we do as the people of God called in this season, called for such a time as this? There's no better example than what it means to be a great church than the early church. Because this was a disrupted church with people whose lives were disrupted and people who sought to disrupt the status quo in religion. One of the earliest statements about the early church and how they function continu continues and shows in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. But even before we get to that portion, there's an important piece to this puzzle for every one of us. We are called out. We were sent to be disruptors. But before they were called out and sent as disruptors, what happens in Acts chapter 2? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. The first thing we notice in Acts 2 is that the believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them to wait. Don't go out and do a thing. Don't try to do it in your own strength. Wait, and wait until my Holy Spirit falls upon you, and then go. Then go to the outer parts of the world. Then go to the cities and the towns and the villages. But before you go out to reach the lost, wait until you're filled with my Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit gave them the power and the boldness to speak God's truth. He did not expect them to do anything in their own power, nor does he expect that of us. 
He has given us the ability to be filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Like we sang this morning, to overflow. All we need to do is ask. Do you not know what to pray about in a situation? Or how to pray about a situation? The Bible says in Romans 8, 26, to pray in the Spirit. And the Spirit will pray through you in groanings that you never thought possible or that you can't even understand. Do you need boldness to speak God's word and his truth? The Holy Spirit gives us boldness. We see that in the early church. There was no fear in their hearts once the Holy Spirit came down. Put me in prison, I don't care. I'm going to continue to follow what God's telling me to do. Whip me, I don't care. I'm going to continue to preach God's word. Stone me, I don't care. I'll go to heaven with my heavenly Father. There's nothing you can do to me that's going to change my call. Are you not sure what to say? The Bible says that the Holy Spirit will give words to say in the moment. But it requires a step of faith for you to start opening your mouth. Start the conversation. And allow the Holy Spirit to speak through you. Do you need to be in alignment with God's plan? Well, the Holy Spirit gives direction. Do you need to be in tune to recognize doors of opportunities that God's placing right before you to share the gospel? Being in tune with the Holy Spirit and being sensitive to what he wants us to do. The Holy Spirit does that. He allows you to, your antennas to be up, to be watching for those opportunities that he gives. And do you need to rekindle your heart, your passion for the lost? The Holy Spirit will do that in you because that's why he came. The Holy Spirit didn't come to be weird or to make us all seem weird. The Holy Spirit came so that people will be drawn to Christ through us. So the main point is the Holy Spirit has been given to us to bring in the harvest. The Holy Spirit is one of the most underutilized tools that we have as believers to reach the lost. We love to talk about the armor, the helmet of salvation, and the shield. And we'll even talk about the sword of the Spirit and relate it to God's word. But what about the Holy Spirit's role? Because without the Holy Spirit, the early church doesn't start. 3,000 people don't come to know Christ that day. They're not believers gathered together, selling everything to help the community. See, the early church was deeply ingrained in the community. They served widows. They helped with the needs of the poor. They healed people, all while keeping the gospel, the good news, central. They didn't do it in place of the gospel. They did it because of the gospel. In Acts chapter 6, you can see that they had a feeding program where they fed widows. The apostles said, you know what, we really shouldn't be spending our time feeding people at tables or serving tables. We need to spend our time in prayer and preaching and teaching. And so they set aside some people that could lead that group, lead the charge for that particular ministry so that the apostles can continue to preach God's truth. That was a long intro this morning. We're going to now get into the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It says, all the believers, everybody say all. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There's that apostles' teaching again that they were focused on. And to fellowship 
and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place, and they shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So we think of disruptive church criteria. Use this as a standard. Often we don't notice. We'll just read right through this and not really think through the details of what he's saying here. But the first word that I want you to hear this morning is they were devoted. They were devoted. That means that they're giving their lives to. They're giving their time. They're giving their resources to the cause. This wasn't some haphazard thing for them. This was life. This was focus. This was their mission. So they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, making sure that they have their story straight, making sure they take those stories that the apostles are t- telling about Jesus and what he did and sharing that with others. They were devoted to fellowship, being together. That's why we're here this morning. They were devoted to the Lord's Supper. We would know that as communion. They were devoted to prayer. And I like this next phrase, a deep sense of awe came over them. A deep sense of awe. You know, it's so easy to become jaded to life when things go wrong. For some of us, it seems like when everything goes wrong. But wait, have we lost that deep sense of awe? That feeling of fear mixed with wonder? of this God that created this world, all the intricate pieces of this world and all the factors that had to go in place for this world to even be created. And then we get to our bodies and we think of all the intricate pieces of our bodies and the the veins and the arteries and the heart and all the things. Are we in awe of a God that created us with that much intricacy, with detailed perspective on everything that he made? Do we look at the mountains or the ocean, which sometimes we can take for granted here, and be in awe of the beauty that we see around us? So not only were they in awe, there were miraculous signs and wonders. Do you believe that God still works miracles today? You see, this is why we as a church, we pray boldly. We come before God, an all-powerful God, with all of our needs, and we pray boldly for those needs. And we don't know how he's going to answer, and we're not God, and we don't know all the details, but we continue to pray boldly anyway. And it says that they met together constantly. They shared in meals, the Lord's Supper. They gave with joy and generosity. They worshiped together. They shared their stuff. When there was somebody in need and they didn't didn't have what they needed, and somebody had a little extra, they sold it and maybe gave them what they needed. They sold their stuff to provide for a need. And when you have a thankful heart, you give with joy. When you have a thankful heart, you give with generosity. Not begrudgingly or because you feel like you have to, 
out of a sense of obligation, but you do it with joy. Some of you, some of you may need to recapture the joy of giving. See, the early church proved to be quite a disruptive influence. People saw what was happening and they glorified God. And the results speak for themselves. They enjoyed the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Isn't that what the harvest is about? Isn't that what our calling is about? When we're being called out. Several years ago, the Red Sox had an outfielder named Manny Ramirez. He was known for his fun-loving personality, and often they would just say, well, that's just Manny being Manny. Well, this is the church being the church. What you see in Acts 2 is the church being the church, the called out ones. This is how the church adds to their numbers. So what does a disrupted church do? They allow God to stir up their hearts again for the lost. Instead of looking internally, their eyes are focused outward to the harvest. They reestablish the joy of their salvation and the joy of giving. They're overflowing with the Holy Spirit. They allow God to break their hearts for the things that break His. They have a passion to reach the very people that Jesus came for, to preach the gospel, to meet needs, to heal, to seek, and to save those that are lost. His church needs to be disrupted out of our selfishness so that we can get on with building the kingdom of God. We have spent long enough building our own kingdoms. It's time to disrupt and build his kingdom. A great church, a healthy church, is one where Jesus Christ is found in word and deed. So let's begin there. Let's begin reaching our community. But first, let's recapture our first love, our first passion, that first excitement, that love for Christ that we want to share with others. I love Galatians 6, 9, where Paul's writing to the Galatian church. He says, so let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if, here's the if, we don't give up. Amen? God is calling us to something greater, church. That may mean something to, maybe something different to each one of you. But I can't believe that God wants this church to remain the same. There are things that he wants to disrupt so that we can become a factor in our community. So that he can use us to reach those that are lost out of relationship, the people that we know. Some of you, your first missionary endeavor is going to be your family. And that's where it needs to be. For others of you, it may be your neighbor, co-workers, people that become friends or close to you, that you truly care about their soul. Because as much as we don't like to say it very often, there's only two places for the soul. It's heaven or hell. If that's not enough to light your fire, that should drive you. 
Father, I thank you for each person here this morning. I thank you for the way that your word challenges our hearts, challenges our presuppositions, challenges our lives, and calls us to be something greater than we are today. Lord, I'm praying for each individual here in this room or those watching online that we'd all begin to see that you have something greater for our lives, a more important purpose than just getting through life day by day and being thankful that we made it one more day. There's something greater. I pray that you begin to do that in our hearts, Lord God, individually that you do that in this church, that you do it in the churches of Cape Cod, in the churches in our state, in our nation, around the world. We're praying for a mighty move of your spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand this morning. I know it's been a challenging message, but it's been a a message out of love because I really feel like God has something for us, but we need to be disrupted a bit in our lives to see it happen. And this is a, a further charge from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 12. So this is what I'm going to read over you this morning. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Notice how you keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share the Lord's people, share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. May God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. And may you be blessed this week and challenged this week to become a disruptor. Amen. God bless you.